Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our 7 Investing Podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. You can learn more about our 7 Investing membership and get access to all seven of our top stock market ideas each and every month. It's started for just $1 at 7investing.com slash subscribe. I'm 7 Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. This is a real treat for the podcast today because we've got one of my favorite returning guests, Andrew Channon is the co-founder of Procure Asset Management. They have an ETF UFO that is a pure play on the space economy. Andrew, I always love chatting about space stuff with you. Welcome back to the 7 Investing Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me again. Andrew, we, we've chatted about the space economy quite a few times in the past. We've talked about the commercialization of space. We're going to talk about a couple investment opportunities later in the program today. I want to touch on Rocket Lab. I want to touch on the end-to-end consolidation of several of the players. And I want to talk about the FCC's recent review process. But maybe we start at uh, something that's been in the news a lot, definitely for the last past year or so. Uh, as so many of these conversations start, this one shall also start with Elon Musk. We've seen Starlink playing an increasing role in the Russia and Ukraine conflict. Uh, maybe I start that as just kind of opening a, a can of worms to ask about how this private company, which is SpaceX, uh, is is playing a role in that conflict. And then kind of broader, you know, what are the roles for private companies to be in the militarization of conflicts like this. And you can take this any direction you want to, but I just kind of want to throw it to you and see what you have to say about all of it. No, there, there's a lot that we could certainly unwrap here. And a lot of it's unfolding before our, our very eyes. Some some is obvious and, and in front of us, other is happening behind closed doors. But when you look at Ukraine and Russia, you have to go back to you know prior to the invasion. And one of the first signs of a potential uh, invasion was satellite imagery from a company called Maxar, which happens to be uh, the largest holding in UFO um, as of last night's close. And they're providing imagery of troop and supply buildup on the Ukrainian border. And around this same time, satellites that were providing uh, communications to Ukraine also went offline. And there's belief that either Russian or uh, other adversarial forces helped to take these satellites out of commission um, so that there wasn't the uh, secure communication available in Ukraine. And Elon Musk and Starlink saw that as an opportunity to provide satellite connectivity for Ukraine, whether that be uh, for military reasons or even for, for civilian use. And there's been many other providers that have rushed to the aid of, of Ukraine to provide um, you know, communications, satellite connectivity, um, certainly weaponry and other ways of providing assistance, but space really entered the, the front of the stage um, at the start of this conflict, showing how integral it is for military purposes. And there's been you know, many different companies, whether you know, advertising that they're providing assistance like secure sat phones um, that, that are being used by, by the leaders of Ukraine to communicate securely. Um, but one of the major things was how we learned how important space is for, uh, for the militaries. Um, certainly, we knew governments relied on it and, and businesses and individuals like you and I. This interview today wouldn't be happening without satellite capabilities and connectivity. But how important space is viewed. And space is now being seen as the military high ground for all modern warfare. And it's not just communications. It's not just surveillance and imagery, seeing what's happening on the ground. But 
you know, connectivity with things like hypersonic weaponry for being able to track missiles and other types of um, offensive or defensive capabilities from your adversary, space is helping us get that insight and in many cases, real time. And so this has become something that is, you know, being viewed by militaries worldwide as if you want to, uh, you know, have a significant military presence or even the ability to just defend yourselves or continue operations without being interrupted, A, it's difficult, but B, you're going to rely on space moving forward. So this is you know, something that's being viewed at the highest levels of the military and governments around the world and something that is you know, not just becoming a, oh, it would be nice to have, but a must spend. And you know, back to Elon Musk and SpaceX, they're, they're providing you know, all different types of capabilities for players around the world, which you know, also potentially makes them a target. When you're providing you know, someone's adversary with capabilities, you know, one of the things that they typically look to do is to get rid of that, that capability. And so certainly the companies put themselves in the crosshairs, but they're you know, making their own business decision to, to move forward um, you know, at, at this current moment in providing these capabilities. And it happened quickly, right? Like the Elon, you know, the Starlink thing, it seemed like the satellites were down. You know, we knew there was an escalating kind of uh, conflict going on in Ukraine. And then all of a sudden, you know, Elon comes in as the white knight that saves the day and the satellites are back up. And of course, government intel is, is important, right? We know that military intel has used satellite for decades, Andrew. But back to the Maxar that you just mentioned, that, that was a big deal. I mean, that was a 129% premium they got acquired for back in December, $6 billion buyout from a private equity company. Um, this isn't just kind of an incremental 10%, 15% premium or anything like that. Uh, that's a doubling of the stock price just over over something that happened kind of, kind of quickly. Um, I know that in addition to Russia and Ukraine, we've had a Chinese spy balloon uh, in the news lately floating over Montana and different parts of the country here. Do you feel like this is just an escalating geopolitical risk environment we're in right now? And is that serving as a huge catalyst for a lot of these companies that are playing this necessary part of all of it? Yes. Yeah, so, so it's difficult. You know, you know, I don't have any, any knowledge that, uh, you know, probably you or, or your listeners have regarding. I do want the Intel, Andrew. I want the security clearance Intel here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'll have to save that for whoever your next guest is maybe, yeah, but, uh, you know, re really you look at this, you know, spy or weather balloon or whatever this may be. And you actually have to look back further to 2018 where there are actually, um, you know, videos, uh, taking place in China, where they're showing capabilities of being able to load what are known as hypersonic glide missiles onto these high-altitude balloons with the ability to launch these missiles from these balloons. So regardless of whether or not this you know, recent instance was something that had military designs behind it, uh, the capabilities are there. And so being able to get over U.S. airspace um, over the continental UA U.S. for you know, a, a significant amount of time and potentially having the ability to launch hypersonic capable missiles uh, is an absolute security concern. And to the extent that this is a region that's not being uh, patrolled or monitored uh, to see if there are any uh, potential incursions uh, certainly is a major concern. And it's something that needs to, to be ratcheted up. And so you know, this may be something that is a space capability where we're able to have an earlier detection of these potential intrusions. And that is all the difference. When you're talking about 
uh, you know, hypersonic weaponry, I mean, seconds, milliseconds, any advantage that you have to detect a potential um, <clears throat> incoming, uh, you know, destructive capability is, is monumental. And so this shows that because there was this gap in capability in being able to detect this, this is going to need to be a high priority to prevent incursions like this in the future. So regardless of what this balloon most recently, what the purpose was, who sent it, what its capabilities were, you know, this shows a, a major gap that needs to be closed. So um, <clears throat> spying, uh, you know, espionage, uh, you know, offensive defensive capabilities are all something that need to be considered by the highest levels of the military and government when preparing what to do moving forward <clears throat> for national security purposes. And now this just checked the box as being a, a high priority. So it's, it's very likely that um, you know, our capability to detect these and monitor these for um, earlier uh, points, uh, the solutions may come from satellites and from space companies and technologies. And we've seen a rampant amount of spending here in the U.S., but also globally from governments and militaries ramping up their space spending. Um, and there's always new areas that can be spent. Um, you know, the U.S. has admitted numerous times that we may have already been leapfrogged in hypersonic capabilities by China and Russia. And what do we do here in the U.S. to you know, provide uh, you know, that we can remain a superpower? It's outspending all of our adversaries. And in many cases, it's outspending you know, numerous countries combined. And space is one of these domains that is now being viewed as you know, one of these high priorities. So um, you know, anytime we see some type of deficiency, one of the best ways to attack you know, closing that gap is by spending money. And we're seeing it happening in real time with all different types of military programs. Yeah. And one last question on the military uh, topic here. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about Russia because that's the conflict where there's tr there's tanks, you know, there's troops, there's, there's things actually happening on the ground. But it does seem like the uh, there's, there's more and more whispers of, of things with China and Taiwan escalating out there. Um, without speculating too much, do you have a perspective on what's going on with China right and, and Taiwan right now? Is there... Do you think an imminent conflict with that? Are you seeing an increase in spin for that region of the world? Or what's your take on China-Taiwan? So, you know, again, I don't have any inside knowledge here to, to what, what's really happening behind closed doors. But just look at how the U.S. has been posturing in the, you know, over the last year and then some, you know, realizing that Taiwan uh, is a country that we're heavily reliant on for many of our technological capabilities, whether it's you know, semiconductors and chips or otherwise. And we're seeing, you know, major programs being rolled out to encourage the development here on U.S. soil, uh, you know, manufacturing capabilities that, you know, previously we had figured, okay, we don't need this here because we could do it so much cheaper when we, we, when we outsource things overseas. But now when looking at national defense, national security, uh, you know, these are things that you know, are major gaps in our own capabilities and becoming less reliant on foreign powers, whether they're allies or not, now understanding how easily um, an allied nation could fall, um, you know, to the hands of a, of a larger, more powerful local neighbor of theirs um, is requiring us to reconsider how our government operates, how our businesses operate, how our supply chains are managed. And this creates more opportunity back home in the U.S. as well. So, you know, there's interesting technologies that are being developed today, um, you know, that that could maybe improve um, on, on our ability to make, uh, you know, high important technological capabilities on U.S. soil. And that's encouraging because not only is that 
making us less reliant on foreign powers, but it's also bringing jobs to America. And ones that are, you know, in some cases, you know, very high paying because there's you know, an incredible amount of expertise that's required for, for some types of um, these technological innovations that we're building here in the U.S. And so, you know, it, at the same time, you know, we're always concerned for our allies, um, but we're also limited in our capabilities and capacity for what we're able to do. And being that Taiwan is so close to China, um, you know, it, it is something that, you know, is difficult for, for the U.S. To, to step in in a moment's notice, um, especially when there are, you know, many battles being waged around the world as, as we speak, some, some small, some large, some unknown to most. And so, um, you know, hopefully, you know, this can also be an opportunity for the U.S. as well as a way for it to, to better protect itself from, um, from, from negative actors that, that would like to see the U.S. have a lesser role in the, in the global uh, perspective. Yeah, the geopolitical tensions will always be there, and nobody wants to be at a disadvantage, so you certainly have to keep pace with everyone else and in terms of satellite technology and the defense budget out there. Great, great points on that one. Let me let me segue to a lighter note. You know, let's stop talking about wars and military, Andrew. Let's talk about commercial opportunities for satellites. Um, one thing that we just saw was the FCC approved 7,500 of SpaceX's uh, next-gen satellites. Uh, they have been given approval for the spectrum that they wanted to operate in for broadband broadband internet uh, that they were going to supply the world with, with high-speed internet. Um, this was a commercial purpose. You know, there's obviously a lot of remote locations that really it's just hard to get high-speed internet that you take for granted if you live in a city or you work from an enterprise, you know, an office building or anything like that. A lot of places in the world don't get that luxury. It's very expensive to lay uh, high-speed fiber optic cables or anything else to get to those. And so satellite has been one of the opportunities for those. And the reason I bring this up is because SpaceX has already got 500,000 global subscribers for their high-speed internet, right? You buy a terminal, you kind of pay $100 a month for, for the service. Somebody on our seven investing team is using Starlink and is very happy with it uh, in the location that they are. But it seems like this might be a catalyst for several other telecom companies to follow suit. Certainly, it's not only SpaceX and Starlink that has a mission of providing broadband internet to the world. Uh, do you have thoughts on this one, Andrew? You know, is this going to, this is kind of generally considered one of the largest applications for the space economy is going to be broadband internet globally. Where do you see this fitting in from the investing thesis? So you look at the different research houses and you know, they'll put out their own various projections on how they see the space industry growing. And, you know, you look at Morgan Stanley, they believe that you know, space could be you know, greater than a trillion dollar industry by 2040. Uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch came out a couple of years ago saying that they believe the space industry could be $2.7 trillion by 2045. Um, you know, so there, there is a wide range of you know, what people believe you know, the size of the space industry can be over the next coming decades. But one thing that many of these uh, projections seem to believe in is that uh, broadband internet connectivity communications will continue to be one of the larger growth areas for the space industry, making up roughly half of the growth over the next coming years. And you know, one of these things that one of the things that this is doing is allowing for other technologies like connected devices to potentially be more efficient, make more sense, and lower the costs for for implementing these types of technologies. You know, you look at a lot of the different areas of um, you know, investment that people are looking at kind of in the thematic realm. And it's things like, uh, you know, 5G connectivity. It is Internet of Things. It's big data. It's cloud computing. And one of the common threads here is 
sending data from point A to point B. And in many cases, if you take satellites and space capabilities out of the equation, these technologies won't work, or they'll be nowhere near as efficient as they can be with having space-related uh, solutions. So you know, these are kind of the, the picks and shovels of the digital data superhighway, kind of the digital data superhighway toll operators in many of these cases for these other technologies that people are investing heavily in, whether retail, institutional, or, or so on. Um, you know, you look at things like satellite connectivity, though, and you know, one of these big areas of importance is low Earth orbit. So yes, Starlink did get FCC approval. However, it was only partial approval. So they uh, received this partial approval for 7,500 satellites to be launched into low Earth orbit for part of this you know, uh, second generation Starlink network. And 7,500 satellites you know, sounds like a lot because it is a lot. And some of these constellations are talking about tens of thousands of satellites, and Starlink is certainly talking about that as well. I believe their proposal was for about 30,000 satellites, and they have this partial approval for now, um, which is kind of, uh, hey, let's see what happens. But the reason this is so important is because that almost doubles all of the active satellites in low Earth orbit today. And so we're talking about sending up you know, magnitudes of what we currently have today. And we've seen things like near misses and collisions. We've seen things like uh, you know, space debris, uh, you know, harming satellites and other spacecraft and assets that we have in outer space. And the more things you add to low Earth orbit, the higher chance that you can have more collisions. And it's not just a collision and then it's done. These items and debris travel at orbital speeds you know, for potentially years to come. And so cleaning it up, Avoidance, deterrence, uh, you know, all of these become important technologies and capabilities that you'll need to see in future generations of satellite as well, the more cluttered things get. And there's a strong belief that because we're sending so many things into low Earth orbit now that you know, debris, uh, debris fields could be something that could you know, make low Earth orbit very difficult to operate in if we see you know, significant areas of, of collision um, in the future that there is a space race. There is a land grab for these different orbits. And so to the extent that you're a company that can get the approval and send things up today, you might be in a better position than 10 years down the road when companies are saying, hey, I want to send things up. But maybe there are a lot more restrictions from the FCC or other global entities that are going to reduce it. So you know, that does many things as far as driving demand forward. And so there are numerous types of companies here that could see benefits from that. So a launch company that might have a ton of orders coming in because companies are racing to send satellites to space. You could be a satellite operator or manufacturer like a Maxar that we just mentioned that's being taken private um, based on the, the acquisition proposal that you mentioned earlier. Um, you have demands for parts for satellites. Um, you know, chips and, and, and sensors and things like that are, are key components for satellites. So there are numerous types of sub-industries within the space industry that could see an increase in demand if we see a huge demand uh, you know, push forward to have satellites sent in, into low Earth orbit before restrictions are, are raised. So this is a really interesting part of the, uh, the space economy that isn't necessarily getting a ton of attention, but there is an urgency today. And that's why you're seeing companies like SpaceX with Starlink, Amazon with Project Kuiper and others putting forth proposals to send tens of thousands of satellites up 
into space for their constellations. So it's almost like if you don't do it now, you might lose that opportunity as well. When you look at these approvals, in many cases, you, know, you have a certain time frame to which you must send these satellites up. And if you don't send them up by that certain time, you might lose some of your future approvals that you have as well to send those satellites. So there is a mad dash to send satellites to space. And there are, are potentially you know, several sub-industry categories that could see a benefit from that. I'm so glad you, you brought up some of that as context, Andrew, because it seems like this is underappreciated. What an inflection point we are going through right now. Like when you when you throw out a number like a trillion dollars by 2040 or $2.7 trillion by, by 2045, those are that's a massive market, right? There was $600 billion of chips sold globally last year. This is now another chip. And this is something that is completely um, perhaps underappreciated out there right now until you realize it. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. I wouldn't even just say underappreciated, but I would say completely misunderstood. And mm -hmm. I think that that's why you see um, you know, bids from private equity firms to take a company like Maxar Private you know, at 130% of their previous night's close. You know, it's because there, there's opportunity that these companies are saying, hey, I don't think people realize what these companies really are, the importance that they provide today and what they might be able to do in the future. And they're saying, hey, I'd happily pay over 100%, you know, what, what the current market is pricing these companies at because they do see this long-term opportunity or even short-term immediate opportunities, whether that's combining a company with what they already have in-house um, or they just see it as a standalone strong business. It's tough to see what they'll end up doing with Maxar in the future, but, you know, they clearly saw some opportunity. And you know, the reality is, you know, from my own conversations, most investors don't understand space. They don't um, understand its importance today. They hear space and they think, oh, space exploration, you know, finding another planet and moving Earth to, you know, to planet B. You know, th that's not what's driving the space economy today. There are real revenues being generated. And in many cases, it's different technologies or applications that are benefiting our life here on Earth. And there are many stable companies in the space industry that aren't saying, hey, we need to make our money when we start mining that asteroid that's worth a trillion dollars. It's, hey, we can benefit life here on Earth based on these capabilities that we're providing. Um, and, and they're creating real businesses out of it. So space is something that I think to so many people, it's so vast, there's so many areas that it can encompass that you know, the vision is focused on maybe what they're hearing the most, which you know, maybe space tourism, because all the billionaires are, are doing space space tourism or offering those opportunities, that tends to draw the headlines, but there's a real need for many different space capabilities today, you know, for having communications like this, for military purposes, for government. But that is why the Space Force was created, because space is its own critically important domain, and each branch of the military here in the U.S. is also reliant on space, even though there is a space force. So, you know, there are real opportunities today. Governments are having to spend today to see those benefits in the future. And, you know, th this is a real time for the space industry. And it's this misallocation due to, I believe, likely misunderstanding that's allowing for these opportunities to persist. And, you know, we, we, we look forward to the time in the future when people have a better understanding and a realization of what these companies have to offer and where we could potentially be in the future. Absolutely. And so for the purposes of, of this show and the seven investing podcast front, let's unwrap this a little bit of what this actually looks like, right? We're not just saying we're going to go put, you know, colonies on Neptune, you know, it's 500 years from now or anything like that. This is actually commercial opportunity. Let's, let's kind of walk through 
what this looks like. It starts with the FCC, like you just said, right? If you want to put something in the low Earth orbit, you have to get approval for the spectrum for the frequencies you're going to be broadcasting anything at, right? And to put some context around this, uh, as you alluded to earlier, there was, at the end of 2021, around 4,500, 4,500 active satellites around the Earth that were, that were active and, and, and operational. And around a little less than 10,000 by the numbers that I saw at the end of 2022. Uh, the FCC has got more than 38,000 pending approvals for satellite requests, including the one that was just recently approved for SpaceX, but several others. You mentioned several of them, you know, Project Hyper, with, uh, with Amazon has got several, uh, 2,500 for this that it wants. Um, other companies like Astra, 14,000 for broadband internet, even Intelsat, Hughes Network, OneWebs, I mean, um, Boeing, I mean, telecom companies, everyone has got plans to put satellites out into space. And that's why you've got the FCC streamlining its process to more rapidly approve even the first step of this. I want to talk about the next step now, uh, which is, okay, let's say that they get approval. Let's say that they've gotten, you know, the frequencies approved for everybody who wants to put them up there. It's not easy to put a satellite that can handle the conditions of space. Um, you know, when, you're, when you've got direct, um, the sun is right there without an atmosphere. I mean, I know that the temperatures alone are going from negative 50 to 100 degrees Celsius in just direct exposure. I mean, there's some some technical factors of even getting this done. But, Andrew... You know, to the satellite operators and the manufacturers of those satellites, do you see, I, I mean, is this one of the opportunities you focus on with, with UFO is the people that actually do this? It's not so easy to even get a satellite, even if you get approval, right? How, how does this factor into your investing case uh, that you look at for these kinds of companies? So really, the, the index provider is looking at companies that are deriving revenues from space. And so for UFO, um, you know, at rebalance, at least 80% of the weighting of the fund is in companies that derive a majority of their revenues from space. Um, you know, also understanding that there are you know, some very large diversified aerospace and defense uh, names that are major players in space, but they don't derive a majority of the revenue from space-related activities, businesses, and services. So they're allowed to have, um, you know, in total, up to a 20% uh, you know, weighting in the fund. Uh, but, you know, each of these companies are different. You know, they're either, you know, have different technologies, they're providing, uh, you know, capabilities for different segments of the market. And you just look at the launch industry alone, and there are numerous players, public, private. Um, you know, in, in UFO alone, you've got a company like Rocket Lab. Um, and then you've got a company like the United Launch Alliance, which is a joint venture between two UFO holdings, Boeing and Lockheed Martin that have the ability to send you know, much larger payloads than something like a Rocket Lab. But you know, Rocket Lab has its own benefits in that you know, it, it's, it's faster to create a Rocket Lab rocket. Um, you know, they have you know, several different areas around the world now that they're able to have the approval to launch, to launch rockets for. They have you know, these smaller payloads, so they can be a little bit more nimble. They can find smaller clients that don't need to send you know, massive payloads into orbit. Um, so they're all kind of carving out their niche, and then some that are successful then start expanding into other areas, whether that's from creating their own technologies through R&D, whether it's through acquiring other businesses or merging with them. Um, but, you know, a lot of these publicly traded companies, um, you know, since going public are finding opportunities to get government contracts as well. So government contracts, military contracts, you know, these can be the lifeblood for, for many companies. 
Um, so it also you know kind of helps to have diversified revenue streams where you're catering to both the government as well as commercial and or civilian uh, applications so that you can smooth out your revenue streams a bit more, whereas government contracts can, can be rather chunky. And if you're completely reliant upon them, there could be any number of reasons why you might not be able to win uh, you know, a government contract, whether that's you know, better rivalry competition, um, maybe it's something that your CEO said or did. Maybe it's a company in an adversarial nation that you did business with. Uh, you know, these, these conditions can change um, you know, with, the, with the snap of a finger. And if you're completely solely reliant on having a business model that's only catered to one type of customer base, you know, it could be riskier as well. So you know, diversification is something that makes a ton of sense. There's you know, you know, thousands of players, uh, space companies from around the world that are specializing in different areas. You know, many of them are private, but you also do have you know, publicly traded companies as well. So this is you know, a constantly evolving industry. Um, you know, you know, mergers and acquisitions are something that you know have happened throughout the space industry. You know, for years, in many cases, it's those those prime companies, those diversified aerospace and defense names that have the the deep pockets. That when a technology is maybe struggling or a company struggling, that they want to own those assets, they can buy them for pennies on the dollar down the road if the company's not able to to achieve their goals fast enough or get those government contracts that they built their entire business model around. So, you know, consolidation wouldn't be shocking. It's something that we've seen, um, you know, for decades in the space industry. But that doesn't mean that, you know, players and upstart players can't come up with great technologies that, you know, solve for, for a certain gap in, in uh, the offerings out there. And they're able to excel and become their own large major player and make their own acquisitions and, and grow as well. So I think, you know, another major thing we need to see is um, you know, the workforce expanding. There is an incredible demand for talented and educated and capable individuals that want to work in the space industry. And you're starting to see universities realizing that by, by offering you know, catered programs for individuals and engineers that want to work in the space industry. Um, and some you know, space companies are deemed as you know, those very cool ones that graduates want to work for. And so you know, that is all helping to drive innovation because it's not just money. It's not just the contracts. It's also great ideas and great employees. And these are things that you need as a foundation to build any uh, you know, strong industry. So it's good to see that we're seeing a lot of people that are starting to say, hey, you know what, this, this is a real industry today, one that I might be able to find a job in and be very happy for, for years ahead. And you know, these are all kind of critical parts of, of the recipe that you need to see to see uh, you know, a, a great final output for these companies. Absolutely. I've got a very close friend who's, who's in the industry. He says the hiring is for real and the applicants are very, very highly qualified. So there's no doubt about that. Um, let's double click in a minute just on the mergers and acquisitions that you brought up. But I first wanted to chat about the public, publicly traded uh, launch providers, too, because it, it's very difficult to put satellites into space and the orbital planes that you want to and everything else like that. It's, it's, perhaps we take for granted that you can't just get a satellite up there and then it automatically just works. Um, we've seen several failed um, uh, launch attempts recently, right? whether it's Virgin Orbit uh, with the issues that they had, Astrolabs are the ones that they had. But then we also saw on um, the positive note, uh, you mentioned Rocket Lab. Rocket Lab just opened a new spaceport off the coast of Virginia, and they just had their first successful launch for Hawkeye 360, who's doing RF data collection for the government, uh, which is, of course, conveniently right, right there in Virginia as well. Um, but it, it seems like in addition to thinking through um, FCC approval for Spectrum, thinking through creating the satellites and what you actually want them to do. You also have to have a reliable launch partner, whether that's 
Um, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, whether that's Rocket Lab with a much smaller electron uh, rocket, like you said, whether that's hitching a ride and ride sharing with the uh, SpaceX Falcon rocket. But it, it's not like this is all just a commoditized industry of launch. I mean, Andrew, it's fair to say these are different approaches on how to even getting these into, into orbit in the first place, right? So let's look at Project Kuiper, which you know we both now mentioned today. Uh, you know they want to send tens of thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit for their constellation. And you know from you know, the casual observer, they'd say, "Oh, Blue Origin, that's owned by Jeff Bezos." Well, Amazon, of course, is going to just use Blue Origin to do that because that's going to make you know their their founder um, you know that much more profitable in his next business venture. But the reality is, they uh, contracted three different launch providers. And uh, none of those rockets that they require, um, you know, for their various specs to launch these massive payloads of, you know, tons of of, uh, of satellite cargo have even been built yet. They're still building these rockets to be capable to send up these Project Kuiper satellites. So, you know, in some cases, it's, hey, you need to build it today so that they can be used tomorrow. Um, but just seeing how, you know, it took more than one company to basically fulfill this demand for, uh, you know, this, this first wave of launches, uh, is, is talent. And, you know, there's always, we're always striving for, for better, faster, stronger, cheaper, uh, you know, solutions for the space industry. And this is also not just a way of, of being able to, you know, get all of these, uh, you know, satellites launched in time. But you know, diversification is important. You know, you know, there's been times when the government has contracted you know a company, not even just for space, but for other purposes, where you know they contract them to create some type of product or service that they're going to need, and the company goes bankrupt before they're able to actually deliver. And so, for a company like Amazon that is you know trying to make a big step into space with Project Kuiper, um, you know, they're diversifying things as well. So. You know, it, it's a it's a strategy not just for investing. It's for you know running your business, um, whether that be supply chain, whether that be um, you know your customer base. Um, your diversification is uh, is is an, can be an important factor. And so you know it's uh, almost like the butterfly effect where you know one company's flapping its wings and it's driving you know many other companies. So you know just because you know SpaceX. Uh, you know, is, is a major space company doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't benefiting other space companies as well. And so, you know, they only have so much, uh, you know, bandwidth to, to launch things using SpaceX capabilities that, you know, there needs to be other solutions as well. And they're picking up a lot of slack too. So, um, you know, as much as you, know, you might, you know, believe that there are fierce rivalries with the space industry, there's also a lot of collaboration. And when you look at government contracts, you know, lots of times it's, you have several companies putting their heads together and doing a joint bit. And, and that's the way that a lot of things get done too. So this is, um, you know, although there's a lot of, um, you know, government secrecy and other things with different types of programs that are being done with space, there's also a tremendous amount of collaboration. I think look no further than how the International Space Station has still managed to survive as a cooperative, uh, you know, place for, for countries that here on earth might be adversarial, um, but they're still doing work today and, you know, uh, commercial space stations and space stations are another thing that we haven't even talked about that there could be another major wave forward for the space industry. It, it feels kind of like the semiconductor industry in a lot of ways to me. You know, you, you look at what Intel did and then what Taiwan Semi did. It's just like they always invested so far ahead of the cost curve and the computing need for the, for the current year. They were always investing for the future demand. And then you see, like you mentioned, Rocket Lab, 
who's doing three launches a quarter right now with this electron rockets, going out there and saying, hey, we have opened a third spaceport globally now. We're equipped and ready to do uh, 120 a year, which is 40 a quarter. I mean, that's, that's an order of magnitude jump from three a quarter that you're doing right now. They are not just investing in those capabilities for, for the fun of it. Uh, they see that the demand is going to be there. Another data point that suggests the point of inflection like we've been chatting about for this entire conversation. Absolutely. And you know, you, you know we're already forgot, forgetting about it because we're in 2023, but SpaceX basically launched a rocket every single week last year. You know, when we talk about, you know, importance of diversity, diversity and suppliers and whatnot, but you know, there are other major obstacles like that we haven't mentioned, like weather. I mean, timing, you know, could be important, but you have to be patient when you're when you're trying to involve space into your business, because just because you have a deadline or a target doesn't mean that every other factor is going to abide by that. And in many cases, you can see a launch delayed days, weeks, even months if the conditions aren't right. So a lot of things need to go right for companies to be successful. But that's another reason that they that they try to diversify themselves in numerous ways, whether it's having launch pads uh, in different regions of the planet. Um, different government jurisdictions and rules and regulations. Uh, you know, there, there's many ways that these companies uh, need to be nimble so that they can be competitive. And then finally, back to the M&A point that you brought up earlier, Andrew, with the, with the exception of SpaceX, which is already a private company, but valued at more than $100 billion in the private markets right now. And with the exception of massive defense contractors like Lockheed out there, the majority of the companies that are publicly traded that are space theme that you're looking at for for the ETF or UFO, uh, I would say most of them are sub $10 billion market cap. They're still very small cap companies. There just hasn't been a ton, ton of revenue, at least in years past, to support them being higher than that. Do you think we're going to see, and then back to the point we just saw about Maxar, you know, 129% premium, I think it was a $6 billion cash offer, at least that has not closed yet, but is on the table. Are we going to see more consolidation of some of the smaller companies uh, in this space? Yes, so you know we, we've seen um, you know with Aerojet Rocketdyne, you know how uh, this is you know, slowly moving forward as well. You know another major um, you know hurdle for some of these companies to be acquired or merge, you know, can be competition. And so you know not only does another company think that you're worth the money, but you know the government has to sign off on it because a lot of these companies are doing things that are very sensitive. Um, uh, you know, for, for governments, for, for Department of Defense or, you know, other foreign equivalent agencies that, you know, just because someone wants to pay you a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean that the deal is going to go through. So, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions have been something that have been, again, in the space industry for, for decades. And, you know, to think that that would disappear, um, you know, seems unlikely. Uh, you know, there, there's also a lot of competition. Sometimes a company might just have one really interesting aspect that might be worth it. So they might be willing to, to spin off and focus their efforts on on something else. Um, you know, things could become obsolete really quickly as well. So you might make a technology that, you know, in all future rockets going forward might not be required. So how do you continue to grow as a business? Do you do you sell yourself to to the one or two companies that might maybe you know, be interested in your product? Um, or do you invest to find you know, paths forward so you can still remain a, you know, a relevant player? But there's all different types of methods. Uh, you know, we've seen kind of the SPAC craze from several years ago bring a lot of companies public. Not all of these companies were necessarily ready um, to be publicly traded companies, but just saw you know, the cash and decided to, to cash in on that opportunity in time. Some of these companies, it helped them dramatically. 
where now they're able to get you know government contracts because they're on a be- much better uh, you know financial footing. Uh, you know, Rocket Lab that we've talked about a couple times is an interesting company. You know, they they successfully despacked and are trading you know about you know half of that you know ten dollar kind of you know spac spac price. Um, but they're still you know showing a lot of a lot of you know impressive stats as a company. And so you know just because a company's market price is something today doesn't mean that that's actually what it should be valued at. And so as you see. M&A, whether it's, you know, companies looking to, to you know, make their own company stronger or just because they find value and think that something is being completely mispriced, people are looking at the space industry. I think that's the important sign um, that, you know, it might not happen today or tomorrow, but, um, you know, in many cases, space companies that are undervalued are seeing demand. Well, this is always one of my favorite conversations of the entire year. Andrew Channon, once again, the co-founder of Procure Asset Management. You can follow along with their ETF uh, ticker on that is UFO for pure plays in the space industry. Jan- uh, Andrew, it's always a lot of fun. Thanks for being a part of the Seven Investing Podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank you to you and your audience, and I'm happy to come back anytime. And thanks for tuning into this edition of our Seven Investing Podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are Seven Investing. <laughs>